Hi, I'm Bonnie Glazer, director of the China Power Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. On March 20th, 2018, the 13th National People's Congress approved a comprehensive restructuring of the government. All told, after the shakeup, the number of ministries in the state council dropped by eight, down to a total of 26. In this episode of the China Power podcast, we're discussing the implications of the reorganization for Chinese foreign policy. To help us guide through these changes and what they mean for Chinese foreign policy, I'm pleased to welcome Yen Mei Xie. Yen Mei is a senior China policy analyst at Gavacal, a global investment research firm, where she writes about China's politics and their impact on the Chinese and global economy. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Bonnie. Well, could you start by providing us with a brief overview of the reorganization plan? Uh, apparently, this is the eighth reorganization of China's government since 1982. So the most recent is just the latest in a string of attempts to perfect China's government apparatus. What are the drivers behind the restructuring now? Right. So first, I want to emphasize that this is not just another reorganization. You know, this this organization by scale, uh, it's only comparable in the past in 1998 when Zhu Rongji kind of revamped the state council into uh, into an organization that's capable of changing China from a planned economy into what they call the socialist market economy. So this time, it's it's comparable uh, in scale with that one. Um, and but, but but I think this time the the motivation is more administrative than economic. Uh, the motive is about combining duplicative responsibilities, you know, breaking down silos, closing regulatory arbitrage to make the uh, the central government more efficient, more streamlined. Uh, one prime example is on the environmental front. So previously, for example. The, the protection of water resources were scattered in multiple ministries, depending on if it was rivers, lakes, ocean, or if it, is, it, it was urban uh, waste or agricultural waste. Uh, so they combined all these uh, scattered authorities into this ministry of ecological and environmental protection. Um, and then there were uh, you know, multiple similar mergers and consolidation of responsibilities into, into ministries and agencies. So I think the main goal is to reshuffle these ministries under the state, state council uh, to make them uh, more, you know, more authoritative, more efficient, uh, and, and to, to be more coordinated uh, and, and break down these institutional silos. Um, but also want to point out that this is only one aspect of the organizational changes that Xi Jinping is doing. This is the administrative aspect in the state council. Another aspect, one major block, is more perhaps more political. It's about changing or clarifying the relationship between the party and state. Uh, so uh, in, in regard to foreign policy, they formalize this leading small group on foreign affairs into a commission. I think the way we can think about it is that, um, you know, these leading small groups, they, they, they are sort of these informal, uh, off-the-book political organizations. Now they're brought on the book. They're likely to have 
uh, a formal staff, formal office, and more uh, formal documentation power to issue policy. I think the goal is to uh, to have like a layer of these these commissions between Xi Jinping and the administrative authority of the state council, so that the bar that the parties' commissions can serve as the the role of uh, 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 making cross cutting decisions coordinating between the different ministries, you know, bring the ministers into conference rooms, mediate between conflicting institutional interests and make final decisions and forging consensus. It's kind of maybe not a perfect analogy, but similar maybe perhaps to the, the National Security Council, the, the National Economic Council that the U.S. president has. Um, and finally, uh, the, Xi Jinping is also changing the relationship between the central government and the local governments and between the party uh, and uh, sort of like business associations, uh, grassroots um, people's uh, organizations, and, and details on, on those are, are still uh, not, not available yet. So it's, it's a lot of changes, quite, quite far-reaching uh, reorganization. You mentioned the new uh, Foreign Policy uh, Commission, the Foreign Affairs Commission, um, and uh, eliminating these leading small groups. In the past, these leading small groups have been very secretive. Uh, Nobody's really known when they met or what their work was about. Do you think that the transformation of these leading small groups into commission, and specifically the Foreign Affairs Commission, do you think this will make it more transparent? And will Xi Jinping continue to be the the head of this commission? Or do you think this will be turned over to Yang Jiechi, the uh, state counselor who uh, is in charge of foreign affairs? I think it's possible the working of the, the commission will be more more publicly available than in the past, but, but by Chinese standards only, right? So uh, I think already in the last five years, we were getting dribbles of information about about these small leading groups, you know, more information available, slightly more than, than decades past. Uh, so it, it's, in general, I think it's a trend that Xi Jinping does want to institutionalize, formalize, and, and regularize some of his role and governance so uh, formalizing this leading small groups into commissions is, is one attempt at that. Um, and uh, as you mentioned, that Xi Jinping has been the head of the leading small group. Um, and I think he's likely to continue to uh, lead that and then hand the, the day-to-day like operational management to Yang Jiechi. Uh, so... I kind of, I kind of, I kind of think perhaps the role of Xi Jinping will be in the Chinese parlance called Taipan, that struck the table. Right? So, if, if Yang Jiechi can bring the ministers into the room uh, to decide on the issue, and they might be squabbling because of their conflicting uh, institutional interests, and Xi Jinping is there to make the final decision, you know, to struck the table, to end the debate, uh, and then to, to come up with a consensus. Well, obviously, a great deal of this reorganization that you've explained is driven by domestic considerations. But, you know, to what extent is uh, the is this an effort to strengthen Xi Jinping's foreign policy vision uh, to make China into a, a global power? Well, I think there's quite a bit of it. Uh, as you said, Xi Jinping has been very explicit that his ambition is to make China into a global power. So we're seeing that 
the whole foreign foreign affairs branch, the whole foreign affairs system getting an upgrade in terms of uh, political uh, standing. Uh, so previously, there w- was pretty much no representation of foreign affairs in the in the very top in the in the top leadership uh, crust. Uh, and but that's 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 changing. Uh, also, a lot of this agency is sort of in charge of uh, foreign aid, uh, culture. Uh, publicity, you know, if, like externally oriented propaganda are getting uh, upgrades uh, in support of kind of refurbishing the China's image and promoting China's soft power. Uh, also, another initiative of Xi Jinping's is to is called this civil military integration. I think the idea is to break down the barrier between the, the defense industry, which traditionally has been state-owned, you know, highly inefficient, wasteful, and corrupt, uh, and then you know, bring down the barrier between that and the more dynamic, innovative, uh, technologically advanced private sector. So there's more cross-pollinization of the two sectors uh, to create a, a more capable uh, and stronger uh, defense industrial complex. And so, uh, you know, China can, the, the, defense, the defense sector can benefit from stronger, you know, better cutting-edge technology and also possibly selling defense technology for commercial use as well. Uh, and also to promote China to become perhaps, you know, big weapons exporter. So, you know, all this taken together, China is trying to, you know, become, uh, you know, boost its, its hard power, soft power, uh, you know, uh, uh, refurbish Chinese image. Um, uh, and, and in order to realize this grand vision of, of uh, becoming a global power. So let's talk about some of the specific new ministries. And you mentioned there's a new ministry of culture and uh, tourism. Uh, on the surface, this new ministry appears to be charged with a similar role as the existing ministry of culture and the National Tourism uh, Administration, of course, now combined into one. So why the merger? And is this related to the goal of building Chinese cultural soft power? Yeah, I think very much so. And let me talk in conjunction with also the consolidation of the administration of things like propaganda, you know, movies, TV, uh, news organizations. Uh, And then uh, these different agencies are also, uh, you know, becoming consolidated. And also some of the power has migrated from uh, the government into the party. Uh, So again, you know, politically being upgraded and showing uh, that the party wants to be in control of these issues. Um, I think it comes, first, China for a long time has had the desire and uh, has been stressing the importance of telling the China story. I think partly that comes from a place of grievance, this feeling that the Western media, uh, CNN and BBC of the world, has been unfairly critical to China or even intentionally smearing China's image. So Beijing wants to tell uh, the China story itself. Um, And um, also Mm -hmm. under Xi Jinping, the ambition is much more than that. Now it's also about proselytize Chinese values. It's about promoting Xi Jinping's way of governance. It's about uh, spreading China's model of development. Xi Jinping is very explicit about providing Chinese values, Chinese governance, Chinese model of of development as alternatives to liberal democracy and to Western values. 
to promoting Chinese cultural power, cultural influence, and soft power is to support um, that ambition as well. Uh, I I was um, actually I was in Horn of Africa a couple of years ago doing research about China's role in uh, peace and security in that part of the world. And Chinese diplomats back then were already telling me that Mm -hmm. they believed the Chinese model was better suited for that part of the world. They believed that there was fertile ground, there was ready audience uh, for, for this message. So China had already started promoting its governance, its development, and were bringing African officials into China to show them how China works. Uh, and they were also just saying, you know, like we believe that we can do better than than liberal democracy. We can we can um, make you know pro- provide an alternative. So that that even before Xi Jinping made that speech at the Party Congress uh, in November last year, China had already begun to promote. Uh, its, its values and, and, and model uh, in Africa. And now these, these efforts are becoming more institutionalized and becoming more coordinated and, and perhaps, perhaps more strategic. Another new entity which you mentioned is the International Development Cooperation Agency, which is apparently a new body that will oversee China's foreign assistance, uh, which up till now has been a responsibility that's been shared between the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and the Ministry of Commerce. Uh, So what do you think is the role of foreign assistance in Xi Jinping's foreign policy strategy, and what will this reorganization, this new entity mean uh, for China's foreign assistance policy going forward? Right. So actually, uh, in the official document, the description of this new agency's role is, let me quote, is to utilize foreign aid as an important instrument of great power diplomacy. That's in quite sharp contrast of how Beijing has treated foreign aid before. So China traditionally has kept a pretty low profile with foreign aid. I think because it can be controversial both domestically and internationally. Domestically, Chinese people believe that China was not wealthy enough to be in a position to help others. You know, instead, China should have invested money in its own uh, hospitals and schools. Uh, also, internationally, China had claimed that it was uh, itself a developing country in need of help from other countries. So, so in the past, in the past several decades, uh, China's uh, foreign aid amounted to sort of ad hoc distribution of favors to uh, to win the goodwill of client states uh, and and friendly foreign leaders. That's clearly changing under Xi Jinping. Um, and the distribution of Chinese foreign aid is likely going to be more strategic, uh, you know, more coordinated, uh, and, and perhaps will have more conditions attached. We don't know what those will be. Um, again, uh, when I was uh, doing my research in, in South Sudan, where China plays quite a big role in peacekeeping and uh, um, uh, and also bringing the parties together to negotiate for peace, um, China was able to tailor its aid for pretty good effect. Um, although the Chinese aid pale in comparison to, in terms of scale, in, compared with Western donors, but because China is not uh, burdened by long domestic approval processes, it was able to deliver uh, in-kind 
and cash assistance, uh, sometimes in emergency situations or sometimes when the foreign leader asks. So also because China's, uh, China was stepping up this donation when Western countries, the EU uh, and uh, you know, uh, the US were cutting back. So China was winning quite a bit of goodwill on the ground, perhaps dis- yeah, disproportionate to the amount it was given. One Chinese diplomat in South Sudan was telling me that uh, they were able to you know, talk with the South Sudan leadership and ask what they wanted uh, and then drew up a list and send it back to Beijing and then deliver quickly when the South Sudanese wanted those items to be delivered. So they they generated quite a bit of goodwill and the Chinese diplomats were very proud of it. And they were saying that in comparison, uh, Western donation tends to be slower and often uh, have you know, procedural rules attached, uh, also maybe you know, less visible than, than what the Chinese were doing, which was to deliver water, digging wells, you know, delivering food. Uh, so uh, the Chinese diplomats were gloating a little bit that they were, they were getting more from, from their money than, than Western donors. But then what will, uh, so, this, so, what will this new organization do for China? How will it make their foreign aid more effective? Um, I think one is probably going to be a lot more visible. Uh, it, it will, you know, China will not try to hide its foreign aid anymore. So it, it could become more transparent in terms of amount and where the money went uh, and what the purpose is for. Um, and I think no doubt it will uh, try to support China's strategic initiative in, in including the One Belt One Road. Ex- exactly how it will operate and how you know how, how it will be distributed to support the initiative, I don't know. Um, uh, and and I, I you know I, I don't want to rule out that it could also be used to promote values that's of sort of like more universal uh, good because uh, attached with One Belt, One Road, China is also trying to um, come up with rules that will, will prevent uh, corruption uh, by, by Chinese companies, uh, which is, again, you know, different from the practice of Chinese companies uh, in foreign countries uh, in, in the past. So I think probably a combination of of promoting China's own national interest uh, and uh, promoting uh, values that that's uh, of more universal appeal. Two of the administrative bodies, uh, the Ministry of Ecological Environment and the Ministry of Natural Resources, uh, will apparently be tasked with strengthening China's environmental regulations. Uh, So obviously this has, uh, I'm sure, primarily domestic considerations. Uh, But do you think it's also connected to meeting China's commitment to the global fight against uh, global warming? Um, I think so. So the unit of climate change used to be under the National Development and Reform Commission, uh, which is also the uh, agency that's in charge of growth and investment. So obviously there was a, a conflict of interest there, moving the climate change unit to the Ministry of Ecological and Environmental Protection makes a lot of sense. And I do believe that China takes climate change uh, rather seriously. It has been reducing its reliance on coal. It has been reducing its energy intensity, you know, not as fast as uh, some countries or uh, environmental protectionists want to see, uh, but the general trend is, is, is pretty positive. 
also, and, and, and you know, going back to Xi Jinping's ambition for China uh, to become a global leader, and I do think he believes that to take a uh, positive and constructive and leadership role in fighting against climate change is part of that. Uh, also, as you mentioned, I think, but then the two, the two ministries, um, probably the mission is still mainly domestic. Um, uh, environmental protection has been steadily rising, uh, importance under Xi Jinping for the last five years. And it, now it's, it's top of his agenda. And there are a lot of, uh, changes happening, um, in China, like politically, institutionally, and also in the Chinese bureaucracy, uh, towards that goal. I'd like to ask your thoughts about the new foreign policy team, which is um, really different than uh, has been in place in the past. You know, we now have the former anti-corruption chief, Wang Qishan, who's been named vice president, expected to take on a large foreign affairs uh, portfolio. Uh, And then we have uh, under him, uh, Yang Jiechi, now a Politburo member, but not named vice premier. Uh, his portfolio is unclear, but I think expected to remain uh, in foreign affairs. And then we have Foreign Minister Wang Yi, who's now been given the, sti- the, the title of uh, state counselor uh, for foreign affairs. So uh, do you think that this this team is going to operate in a more effective way? Do you think there'll be coordination issues or competition between them? How do you think this is all going to work? I I am rather of two minds on this. Um, On one hand, uh, as you said very clearly, um, foreign affairs is getting an upgrade. There used to be no one at the senior leadership who was dedicated to uh, foreign affairs. The highest uh, official... um, uh, in charge of foreign affairs was, you know, several steps removed from the power center. Now we have Wang Qishan, uh, who is vice president and also, you know, pro- who's guaranteed a direct line, uh, direct audience with Xi Jinping. Uh, and then Yang Jiechi in the police bureau, and I think he's likely to be in charge of this foreign affairs commission. Uh, then foreign minister Wang Yi also got a upgrade. He's now also the state counselor. So, so yes, clearly we can see that Xi Jinping is uh, giving more priority to foreign affairs. But also, there seems to be a lot of layers. It seems also to be a situation of lots of cooks in the in the kitchen. So, as you said, you know, I wonder about this coordination issue. I wonder about if the command chain is too long, uh, and uh, uh, you know, going also also the foreign ministry itself as an institution seems to be downgraded. You know, from foreign ministry, there are several additional steps uh, to, to the leadership. Um, so I do wonder about the convention and the coordination. Also, you know, in, in practice, when a, when a foreign minister from another country visits, who's, who's exactly the counterpart? Who, who, who do they talk with? Um, so, so I don't know. I'm, I'm rather conflicted about whether, whether this is good or bad. Um, but perhaps I think, you know, the, the, it, it is a process and, and there, there will be a process of, of debugging uh, going forward. This is perhaps the point of Wang Qishan is perhaps is in response to what's going on in Washington, uh, because I think in what's, ha- what's happening in the White House, Trump's style of conducting uh, foreign affairs is becoming more personalized. He is clearly impatient with institutions, bureaucratic channels. Uh, and I think China is responding to that. 
Uh, also, so the Chinese side of the management of the U.S.-China relationship is becoming more personalized. They meet someone who is a trusted uh, lieutenant of Xi Jinping. So, you know, when, when maybe a Trump's uh, crony or advisor talks with Wang Yishan, they know they have a, they have a direct line. Uh, and also we have uh, uh, Liu He, who is kind of the economic architect of Xi Jinping, also playing a role. I think Liu He is also well-liked uh, by Americans. Uh, uh, I think some Americans still believe that he's a, he's a liberal uh, market economist by heart. Uh, so Wang Qishan also uh, is one of the rare Chinese senior politicians who can talk with foreigners off the cuff and have a free flow uh, chat and leave them always charmed and impressed. So I think the combo is designed kind of to appease Americans. Um, but I think Beijing has a pretty realistic goal of, of where this is going. I don't think they, they have the ambition of reaching some enduring accommodation with, with this White House. Instead, I think their goal is to uh, manage the risk, try to put off the fire when they emerge, uh, and buy time in the hope that perhaps one someone that they can really negotiate with coming to office in a few years, or to buy time that China can become even stronger, uh, that the U.S. really can't easily mess with it. Finally, I'd like to ask you about uh, another development uh, over the last few days, uh, not related to the state council, uh, but nevertheless related to Chinese um, foreign policy and activities and capabilities, and that's the Coast Guard, uh, which has apparently been put under the People's Armed Police, uh, and that's the PAP, and and the PAP is now directly under the Central Military Commission. The state Oceanic Administration, meanwhile, has been considerably weakened. And I think some people worry that this means a further militarization of the Coast Guard, which most most countries see as a law enforcement uh, agency. So what are your thoughts on those changes? Right. I think it does reflect the fact that the Coast Guard uh, in China has both law enforcement duties, such as you know, anti-smuggling, and externally oriented mission, uh, such as you know, asserting mainly asserting China's maritime claims. So it is some somewhere between the police and the military, and that's exactly the space where the People's Armed Police occupy. Um, and often, you know, when talk with uh, some Chinese security experts, they often point out that the U.S. model, model, they point out that the U.S. Coast Guard is also somewhere between law enforcement and military. Uh, and I think Xi Jinping has the intention of making the Chinese Coast Guard uh, better equipped, um, having, you know, bigger, better weapons, uh, more coordinated, uh, uh, professionalized, and more assertive in asserting China's maritime claim in, in the East and, and South China Seas. Um, and, and I think that's, that's just the, the ongoing trend. Well, thanks for helping us to better understand uh, all of the changes unfolding in China, the, uh, the reorganization that was announced at the National People's Congress. We've been talking to Yan Meixie, Senior China Policy Analyst at uh, Gavakal, a global investment research firm. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. My pleasure.